If I tell them you're in your right mind, they'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. They'll put you in prison. Prison? Because I'm in my right mind? What a world. Go to prison, you'll never act again. Hello and welcome to Fighting Anime, a podcast about life's big questions. I'm Marshall McCready, and I'm really excited to bring you an episode today about nothingness, faith, and psychophilosophy. It's just going to be one segment. We're not going to have our usual follow-up segment of thoughts and recommendations for this episode, um, and this the main segment is going to be divided up into three parts. We're going to start with what psychophilosophy is, because it forms the basis of the subsequent topics. Then we're going to talk about nothingness, and then we're going to talk about faith, which I very likely understand in a different way than you do. Not totally sure about that, but very likely. Um, a couple housekeeping notes. First, I could have gone about how I... I could have gone about the previous episode a little bit better. I stand by most of what I said, but the way I said it could have been clearer, could have been more organized. You know, a lot of the benefits that I personally get from doing these podcasts is I listen back to them and I realize contradictions in what I said or uh, better ways I could have communicated it. And I was really trying to emphasize how identity and identification are social, social processes of negotiation particularly in a democratic society. But a lot of the examples I gave were me uh, saying that I would refuse to understand someone in a particular way. I, I really feel like uh, I did okay with talking, bringing up um, the transgender topic to show how uh, these processes of social negotiation are contextual, but I could have been more clear about this. My point was to say that how this how it works when a particular group um, says we want to be understood this way and another group says we don't want to understand you this way is usually a compromise is met uh, or is achieved and the compromise entails uh, the group understanding the group the way that they want to be understood in certain contexts and not all and it goes both ways right because every time there's a disagreement each group is saying, you don't understand me the way I want to be understood, right? It goes both ways all the time, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't be a disagreement. Um, I could have fleshed that point out a little bit more. Still, the episode is worth listening to. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. Um, also, you probably will like the weird and random thoughts and recommendations at the end of the episode. Um, just skip to that if you don't want to hear my thoughts about identity and identification. <laughs> um, as always... Email me at fightinganime at gmail.com with any feedback. You can rail against me. You can talk about how much you love me. Um, or you can email me, email me and tell me how apathetic you are and performatively contradict yourself. That would be ironic. Um, uh, any topics you want me to talk about, anything like that, shoot me an email. Um, and if you like this podcast, please share it. Please send it to your friends. Um, share it on social media whatever you do, uh, that would be great. All right, let's talk about psychophilosophy. Okay, psychophilosophy. This is not a term I made up, but 
I might have my own understanding of what it means. I'm not totally sure. Um, but that's cool. I'm okay with that. Here's what I mean by it. Um, and just, I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying that nothing I'm saying is particularly new. Um, I am just a diehard existentialist <laughs> and a pragmatist. Um, and these, the, the history of the, these philosophical traditions, uh, basically, there's way more rich uh, literature about, about what I'm saying there, if you want to find out more about it. But here's kind of how I integrate it all and how I currently understand it uh, myself. And here it is. So here's the starting question to ask. Where are philosophies? Where are ideas? Where are understandings of life and the world? Where are worldviews? Where are they? They have to be in our minds. Where else? Where else would they be? And how, how could they be if they were somewhere else other than in our minds? Wouldn't they, be, wouldn't they necessarily need to be a different kind of thing? if they weren't in our minds, like if philosophy was a person, if it like actually was a person and not a way of understanding life, then we would be using the term philosophy in two very different senses. And it would be very useful to make a conceptual and terminological distinction. So most of the time, what we mean by philosophies and worldviews and understandings and ideas are products of mental, or I prefer the term psychic, um, but I don't mean that in a mystical way, not totally, although you'll see that I uh, ha can kind of veer into a kind of hermeticism or mysticism uh, because, well, we'll get to that. Um, but, but yeah, mental or psychic um, processes. They're the products of mental or psychic processes. And let's unpack this a little bit. Um, if, if I were to ask you, what is your life philosophy? What is the philosophy that characterizes your life as you have lived it and are living it? It might be easier to think of this question with respect to someone who's already died. What was this dead person, this dead person's life philosophy? If their life were to be made into a philosophy that we could understand and try to... Uh, you know, evangelize to other people, how would we determine what that person's life philosophy is? What do they symbolize? What do they stand for? One approach might be we could go back in time and we could just verbally ask them, do you think that that would be a good way to do it? Do you think people know what kinds of lives they're living? I want to suggest that many people, including ourselves, don't oftentimes, perhaps all the time. Here are some examples. When you're drunk, you like people who are drunk often think they're sober. And often when you're tipsy, you'll be like, oh, I'm tipsy. But then when you're really drunk, the more drunk you are almost, <laughs> the more likely you are to think that you're sober. So who is the authority in the moment there about what you are, about what you stand for, what you symbolize, what you represent? You? Or the people around you who are like, oh, man, you're just, you're really drunk. You need to go home. What about a schizophrenic who thinks they're Yoda or Napoleon? Do, are they the best person to understand 
the philosophy that they are uh, exhibiting, representing through their behavior in the world? What about an anorexic person who thinks they're fat? Are they reliable for this purpose? What about someone who's sleepwalking, who kind of like grumbles frustratedly when you're like, hey, you're, go, go to bed, go to bed, and you try to like, try to reason with this zombie? They're sleepwalking. Are they the person to talk to? And what about another much more disturbing form of sleepwalking? What about a teenager who has grown up in a cult, in a real serious cult, sheltered from other ideas, ideas external to those presented in the cult, and thinks, really thinks, if you were to ask them, that they have freely chosen these ideas that they believe? Are they really the best person to ask about the kind of philosophy they're standing for? I would say probably not. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a two-way street. You kind of need to talk to the person, but you also kind of need to talk to the people around the person to really get a full sense of, of what the life philosophy is, right? And what does that mean? My point here is that um, psychophilosophy is uh, a way of understanding philosophy that is modified, grounded, rooted in psychological truths. How you, how your psyche is, how your mind is, and your mind includes your body, how your body, mind, how your psyche is, at any given moment, is totally, completely inextricable. It is totally bound up with, in a way that cannot possibly be separated, your philosophy. And because your philosophy, your actual philosophy in life, not when you're just like on an armchair reflecting about the cosmos, like the actual practical philosophy you live in life, is the sum total of your understandings of the world combined with other people's understandings of your understandings, right? Just think about, like, I'm, I get really practical with it um, because I think that's the right way to think about it. Our lives are mostly practical, are they not? Who has, very few people have the luxury to not be practical most of the time. So say you wake up and you have one of those electric toothbrushes and the, the, the battery dies inexplicably mid-brush, mid and then you're trying to get to work and every single light is red and it's not just red it turns red really quickly from yellow in a way that's like totally uncharacteristic of stoplights right when you get up to it so it's like even worse than just being red it's like you had a shot and then like the light was like screw you person uh screw you in particular i know you're trying to get to work but no no right then that happens and then and then it's lunchtime and oh, you, you drop your lunch and it goes all over your shirt, right? And then on the way home, it's raining. And even if it's a little bit sprinkling, for some reason, everyone loses their minds and no one can drive. And like everyone is just dying <laughs> on the road and there's like accidents and like fire trucks. And you're just like, gosh, I wish people would stop dying. I want to get home, right? Or wish they would die faster at least, right? So I can get home. Um, so you finally get home. And then someone at home makes a sarcastic joke that on most days 
you would you might uh, if you were in a good mood you might kind of joke back wittily right that's in your best mood you'd be proud you'd be proud of how you would respond right you'd be funny in the moment um or maybe on on an average day you just kind of let it slide you just kind of go okay well whatever uh but today what is it what is it is it a sarcastic comment your response your response indicates what it is. If you've had a day like this, I bet it's not a sarcastic comment. I bet it's a personal attack. I bet it's, how? Come on. I've gone to work all day, and this is how you treat me, right? This is the kind of thanks I get. You, you really, you need to take things more seriously. What have you done today, right? What, what kind of things have you done today? I've worked today, right? So it's a confrontation. It's an attack. It's, it's not a sarcastic comment, is it? Not, not in the moment, maybe when you cool down a little bit later, or the next day, or a few days later, then it's a sarcastic comment. But what is your philosophy of, of what happens in the moment there? It's inextricably bound up with your psychic state, isn't it? That's always how it is. Always. Always. And why is it always like that? Because you can't get out of your head. You can't, and your head is your body, right? You can't leave your body. Because you are embodied. You are human. And your ideas are products of understanding, right, in the moment, which is a full body experience. So, so to, to think that, uh, that you could understand philosophy without understanding psychology is really bizarre. Here's some, here's some other things to think about. You know when you go to the doctor for like a physical and they have like one of those little weird rubber hammer things and they hit your knee and you have like the knee, I think it's a, I'm, not, I'm gonna butcher it, I don't know what it is, and you have the reflex, right? That's a perception and an action at the same time, right? Your knee, so to speak, you, right? Uh you perceive oh stimulus right and then instinctual response boom knee reflex right hopefully <laughs> hopefully you have that right so it's a perception and an action at the same time and that represents your understanding of what happened right that is the same thing it's the same thing as when someone calls your name and you reflexively go what? Or you reflexively turn, or you reflexively shift your attention. It's the same thing. There's Just because one thing seems to be a head thing, and one thing seems to be a knee thing, doesn't mean that both aren't you things. Because both things are you things. People have this totally weird distinction where they go, oh, if I'm not doing it with my head, it's with my body. And my body's not my head. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, that's so, so wrong on so many levels, right? Totally wrong. <laughs> um, because um, you can, you, you, like if you practice the piano or you play an instrument, the reflexes, so to speak, of your body are inextricably connected to your anticipation of the next note. Is that... Is that in is the next is the anticipation of the next note in your fingers or in your head? That's such a stupid question. It's a stupid question. It's obviously they're connected. 
you're, you're not, you can't ever be a floating brain. You wouldn't be you. You're not your brain. Your brain wouldn't even be what we understand brains to be if it was disconnected from the rest of that which makes you, which comprises you, as in your being, your body in the world. So people people still haven't gotten, this like hasn't entered the social consciousness really, even though most social scientists who are any good at what they're doing totally grasp this. And a lot of, um, a lot of really good therapists get it, uh, like psychotherapists, psychiatrists, right? They understand this, um, but it's really hard. Uh, it's, it's really hard to kind of get people to see it for some reason. But let's, I wanna give you some more examples. Um, one time I was driving to the gym and I was kind of driving in that way where I was zoned out, right? Um, I, I follow these, uh, I, whenever I go to the gym, I always have like a plan and I have this app and it just runs me through the program. I like to not, I like to lose myself in the exercise and not have to plan the next exercise. And like, so the most I do is I count my reps and that's all I have to kind of keep in my mind. The rest of me, I can let go. It's how I really, it's, it's really my meditation, right? People like talk about how great mindfulness meditation is and mindfulness meditation is only great for certain kinds of people, right? Like if your mindfulness meditation is working out to scream music at the gym, more power to you. There's nothing less mindful about it. Um, you're still having to exercise um, this skill of letting go and kind of getting into the exercise, right? So it's overrated in my view, the mindfulness meditation, but it's still super good. It's still super helpful. Don't, don't get me wrong, but, I, but what's, over, what's overrated is people's sense that that's the only way to do it. Um, ugh, tangent. Anyways, I was headed to the gym, lost in thought, and, and this is something that I only appreciated after it happened, right? Because it was so reflexive and instinctual. This was in broad daylight, uh, like in the morning. A raccoon starts running across the road, and it's like a three-lane road because I'm in Texas, and every all the roads are huge. It wasn't even a highway; it was just a massive frontage road. Um, and I instinctually checked my mirror, and like quickly shifted lanes so that I didn't run over the raccoon. So like, let's unpack this. I, and this, and, and I only was, and afterwards, after it all happened, I was like, oh my God, what was that? And then I remember feeling really proud of myself that I checked my mirror. I was like, wow, I, I, I guess I have that built in. I guess I'm a better driver than literally everyone, <laughs> literally everyone says I am. And uh, obviously I can't infer much from that one moment. Uh, <laughs> people think I'm a bad driver. Um, but... This, so the context, there was something that happened in my environment, in the context, my understanding of the environment is my understanding of context, right? Something happened in the environment, raccoon, something's happening. And I perceive the raccoon, so the sensory perception goes through my eyes into my brain, right? Brain is perceiving it through the senses. And then at really what seemed like the same exact time, it might have had... it. 
effectively was, although there must have been at least a minuscule delay, perhaps. Um, although, right, so there was a, there's a little bit of a, a delay, and then I reflexively shift in my attention to the mirror, and I check, right, because I have this built-in automatized habit, and then I'm turning the wheel, and importantly, I'm always updating, right? People have this weird thing where they, they just, they like freeze time. And they go like, oh, brain perceived, and then brain thought, and then brain responded. And it's like, that's true, but that's happening at every second. When you are, when someone throws a baseball, and you are watching the baseball, and you're running, you're, you're still, you're looking up at the baseball, you're watching the baseball, and you're running, and you're sticking your hands out, you are constantly updating your perceptions and your behavior based on a shifting trajectory. You're constantly updating and modifying your predictions based off of these perceptions and your psychic or mental body extrapolations of these perceptions. You are always living one step ahead, always reacting to um, predictions, extrapolations based off of historical experience. You're going, oh, the ball is going this way, uh, and that means it's probably going to fall over here, and so I should move my body to be over there, um, where I think it'll fall. Oh, oh, it's now it's going over here. Now I should shift over to where I think it's going to fall over there, right? Um, but this is this is a really good example of how we are constantly embedded and embodied, right? We are embedded in context, and we are embodied in our bodies, and and so constantly, what we are doing. What we're doing, our activity, um, is a function of three things. And these are at high levels of analysis. You can think of it in a different way, but I think it's really helpful to think of it this way. I didn't come up with this. This is a famous idea in psychology, and particularly in um, therapeutic psychology. Brain, body, and context. Um, there's other ways to put it, but I like that way to put it the best. Um, it's the context, the raccoon, right? There was no car behind me, so I could shift lanes. The baseball is shifting its trajectory. And that is inextricably bound up, right? What the context is, if I'm blind, well, obviously the context is a little bit different, right? So like, and so the context is inextricably bound up with my body, so to speak, which um, is my... Um, uh, you know, my my hands are turning the steering wheel. My head is turning to look at the mirror, right? When you're trying to catch the baseball, your legs are running, your arms are outstretching. And then the mind, the brain, right? And the brain here uh, kind of represents the component of, of prediction, extrapolation, um, anticipation, right? It's in, in order for that to happen, there must be concepts, right? And, and concepts in the brain are different from, um, they're, they're, they instantiate a little bit differently than how we think of context concepts usually, but still, concepts are a useful way to think about it. Um, when, when I see the raccoon, my brain, without me really being, without me being self-conscious of it, is like, this is, it's like, oh, thing moving that can't, that I can't run into, right? Thing moving, don't run into thing, try not to run into thing. Also, don't hit other car, right? Don't get into car accident, right? Oh, shift lanes, avoid, right? And so the, the brain has a history. That's what I'm trying to say, right? And, and it's an extrapolation machine 
that uh, that is embedded within the body and context that modifies how you respond to things based off of how you think uh, they will happen um, according to previous experience. Um, just a second, my animals, my cats or dogs are freaking out. It's so annoying. Okay. Um, right, so, God, God, okay, just a second. Okay, I'm back. I put the dog to bed and the cat has been liberated. Anyways, as I was saying, it always works like that. It's always, it's always like this example of me and the raccoon or me and the baseball, right? Except there might be a little bit of a difference in terms of the relative input from it, from one of these three sources. We can't know that though. It's impossible to know that. I really think that social psychology, social psychologists who try to determine, oh, well, how much of it's the situation and how much of it is the person. It's like, well, it obviously depends on the individual. It really seems like a fruitless case to, 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 for me. Like, I don't see much point in that, which is why I'm not going to be a trait psychologist. I don't really care about generalities. I'm going to be an individual psychologist. I'm going to talk, think about the individual and in terms of the individual. Anyways, but it always works like that. And think about it. So you might be thinking like, well, well, when I'm really thinking hard, when I'm like studying stuff, when I'm like analyzing or deliberating, uh, when I'm on my armchair, it's not like that. It's not so spontaneous and kind of, um, you know, bound up in these other variables other than my my neutral observer rationality logic, capital L logic, right? No, no, no. Like, just think about it. Like, just think about it. If you are trying to think about life, and you're really trying to, like, read philosophy and write a philosophy paper or, like, you know, you're trying to unpack... Um, some kind of religious text, or you're trying to get closer to God, whatever you're trying to do, imagine doing it in a really loud cafe, right? It's really loud. There's like plate, uh, like the, there's uh, uh, dishes clinking together. There's these girls talking, and they're like, nah, nah, nah. you know, people on their phones, people on, people talking on speakerphone, right? They'll just like hold their fucking phone like a foot away from their face, and they'll be on speakerphone in public, right? There's all kinds of stuff going on, right? Imagine trying to uh, develop your philosophy there versus in the armchair, right? It's not that now you are somehow not contextualized in the armchair. It's just that the situation is different. So, like, it might be that you might actually have some kind of insight if you're having a hard time concentrating and you're trying to force yourself to concentrate you might come to some different conclusions in the loud diner than in the armchair. Maybe. But it might just be harder to concentrate. But all you're saying there is, I come to conclusions I like better in this context. It doesn't mean that somehow the context is irrelevant. Not at all. Because you probably would have never come, you, well, okay, by definition, you could never have come to the conclusions that you came to uh, while in the armchair in other contexts. You can't know that. Maybe. 
But by definition, the conclusions that you came to in the armchair context, you came to in the armchair context. So the armchair matters, right? And if there were no armchairs, what would that mean? Hard to say. Kind of impossible to say, isn't it? It would, the only implication is that another context would influence your conclusions differently, right? But my point is that you can't get out of that. You can't escape the fact that everything that you think, everything that you do is a function of brain, body, and context, right? And importantly, that's what you do, but you cannot understand at time B what you did at time A, right? You can be a schizophrenic person who says like, I'm Yoda at time A, and then at time B, I ask you, why do you think you're Yoda? And then at time C, you can go, well, I don't think I'm Yoda, right? So it, there's, a, there's an issue of consistency across time, and people aren't self-aware. I'm not, it's impossible to be totally self-aware, right? I'm not totally self-aware. It's impossible, right? You can't be a person and uh, be totally self-aware. Um, there's a degrees of that, but, but importantly, you can't be self-aware all the time, right? Are, are you saying you've never slept? And who, who's a better judge to ask what's going on when you're sleeping? You, the person who's sleeping, or someone else who's watching you sleep? It's just like the example with when you get drunk. Who's a better who's a better judge? You when you're drunk about whether you're drunk or someone else. Particularly if you're someone who thinks who likes to think that you're sober when you're drunk, right? You're not a good judge of what's actually going on, what's happening, what you're doing, what you're standing for, what you're symbolizing, what you're representing, what kind of philosophy you are embodying and practicing in the moment. Philosophy here being uh uh, both action and perception, which are the same thing. Okay, so the implications of this are it just doesn't make any sense at all to think that you could come up with a useful answer or a good answer or a true answer or a right answer to the question, what am I to do in this world? What am I to make out of existence? It's really weird to think that you could come to a good answer to that kind of question without first asking, well, what kind of thing am I? Right? And what, how, is my, how, um, how is the kind of thing I am related to the ideas that I have? It's like asking, what can dogs do without knowing that dogs have four legs and not two legs and wings? It's like, well, you can't even start to answer the question, what can dogs do, much less what should dogs do if you don't know what kinds of things dogs are, right? If you don't even know that they don't have wings, how could you possibly have a good, right? So you need to understand psychology, at least a little bit, right? It's, you don't need to go to school or like read a bunch of books. You just need to face the fact that you are an embodied embedded being and that that is totally unavoidable and that has to impact how you understand philosophy and what kind of philosophy you develop right i i believe that psychological facts facts about our psychology about our existence in this world must come first 
before we can start to think about which philosophies are best or correct, right? Because, because if we don't understand what kinds of things we are, then we will very likely be misguided in our philosophies, right? They probably won't serve us very well if, if they aren't, um, if they aren't a good fit for the kind of thing we are. It would be like asking a dog to fly, right? No, you don't want to ask a dog to fly. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't comport with the type of thing that it is. So this is psychophilosophy. It starts with the psychology, and then it goes to the philosophy. And here, people like Nietzsche and William James, and to some extent Sartre, um, are, are, good, um, are good people to look into if you want to know a little bit more about this. Last point on psychophilosophy here. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed that my understanding of philosophy, which is to say, uh, and here I don't mean practical philosophy, I mean like capital P philosophy, like my sense of like, if you were to ask me, what kind of world do we live in? And what is our role in it? This is the answer I would give you, right? I don't think that this is the most real sort of philosophy. I think the more, most real sort of philosophy is your responses to things in life, right? When you wake up and the toothbrush battery fails, your response to that, I think that says way, 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 way more about your philosophy than what you say you think your philosophy is, right? But what I've noticed is that I tend to say that I think uh, that the world is nihilistic and meaningless and gross when I am socially isolated and depressed, right? If I haven't gone outside long enough, I, I, I am pretty neurotic. I'm a pretty highly neurotic person. I fluctuate up and down, right? And that's not always bad. Um, that means that I'm, uh, that I can shift with, with changes in context, I guess. But of course, there are downsides, many downsides. <laughs> um, but I've noticed that uh, if I go outside and I start to hang out with more people and I get back, at, get back going to the gym, right, and I fix my diet, wow, all of a sudden life life is more purposeful. <laughs> oh man, actually, you know what? There actually is a purpose in life, philosophically. It's justified intellectually, at least a little bit more than it was before, right? I don't know if you've noticed that about you, but it really seems like the psychic context, which is inextricably tied to the bodily, right? You're fat and lazy. You're also depressed, right? It's not a coincidence that those correlate um, they coincide, and then you also tend to stay home in the dark, right? There, and so the context correlates with your with your psychic depression, with your bodily unhealthiness, uh, like you're eating junk food, right? All of those things happen at the same time because these things are inextricably linked. But the philosophy that you will espouse, the capital P philosophy that you will espouse, is also inextricably linked to the, that kind of situation, right? Uh, all, all mental health crises are existential crises. All mental health crises are crises of philosophy, of practical philosophy, right? It means something's wrong. Something's not working, 
your approach to life is not working. A mental health crisis is a crisis in your approach to life, in your approach to existence. Okay, let's move on to nothingness. Alright, nothingness. I just want to start out first by uh, contradicting a common misunderstanding of what I'm about to say. I hear this uh, from the, from religious people, um, specifically the Christians who I know and love and have grown up with, and also from like Christian apologists who I don't like very much. There's this guy who came to, I, I did my undergraduate education at uh, UT Dallas, and there's this guy, Frank Turek, T-U-R-E-K, I believe, who used to debate um, pretty high-profile atheist people. And he came and he talked at, at the school, and I was just totally blown away by how stupid he was. Um, and he was someone who emphatically, emphatically embraced this conflation. And here's the conflation. If I say nothing is true, and then you say, oh, are you saying that's true? Oh, are you making a claim? And so isn't that self-contradictory? You're totally, completely missing it. You're missing it. <laughs> so much. And, and it's sad that you're missing it. But you're totally missing the point. And here's the point. If I say nothing is true, this is a this is like a Buddhist principle. This is this is tied to a lot of different, lots of even it's even a Christian principle. Christianity properly understood, the idea is that all claims are fallible. All ideas that humans can possibly come up with can fail them in life. People have apostatized from every religion. People have left every political philosophy. Every idea has worked for some people and not worked for others. People even give up on life itself. They apostatize from living. There is no certainty in this world. There is no, there is no way to say that the claims you make will always work. Because things change, and the unexpected constantly happens. And if you want to pretend otherwise, you will end up in a mental health crisis, in an existential crisis. That's what, they, that's what happens. Right? And if you don't have a crisis, it usually just means you're ignoring the problem to such a degree that you're repressing the crisis and just... Pro and just like pushing it further into the future, which is even worse, because then you're going to make it worse, right? But when people say nothing is true, they're making a claim about the relationship between people and the future. And specifically, it's about the relationship between um, a set of ideas that serve you now in one context and how well those ideas are likely to serve you when things change, right? If you take the same approach now in this context as you do in another context, if you do that for 
uh, habitually for a long time, for even a short amount of time, you're going to run into trouble, right? Because things change. You have to change. You have to update. You have to learn and develop and grow. That's what these things mean. What is growing? Think about a tree. What is growing if not adapting to changing circumstances, right? Oh, there wasn't water before. Now there is water. Let the tree's branches will shift and move closer to the water, right? If a gazebo is put up or some kind of some kind of thing that blocks the sun on one side, the tree will adjust so that it can take in the, the sun uh, from the other side. That's what growing is, right? And when it comes to people, it means adjusting to changes. It means it means moving in the direction that will help you deal with more things that come at you from the future, right? So the claim that nothing is true, it's not even really a claim. It's kind of just an undeniable fact of existing in time. It's kind of the most fundamental reality in a sense. Uncertainty. Humility. It's humility. And that's what's so amazing when, when a Christian apologist doesn't get it. They're not Christian, in my view. They are heretics. The thing that they are, the apologetics that they're performing, it's, it's to just lure people into a false sense of security that will actually likely hurt them later in life, right? Because they won't have the spirit of updating, right, so to speak. They won't be able to grow and develop because they will become dogmatic, right? They'll think the perspective I have now is true, absolutely. It can never and should never be updated, right? It's inflexible. That means they're inflexible. They're like an inflexible tree. What happens to an inflexible tree? It dies. It dies before it could have. It, it dies before it should have, right? It could have potentially lived longer, and grown more, but it has a premature death, and that can happen psychically and then usually physically. It happens not too long later, uh, afterwards, right? Your body starts to deteriorate because you're constantly frustrated, right? What is a sign that something is not true, useful, right, or good? That if it constantly causes you anxiety, despair, and depression, and you and it hurts you through this psychic trauma and therefore hurts the people you love. How true is that? Not. It's not true. It can't be. What standard of truth could there possibly be where that would fit? Everyone would be dead. Everyone would be dead if something like that could be true. Do you see? Everyone would be dead. So it can't be. It can't be true, useful, good, or right. Right? And if you think that death for everyone is good, I don't, I can't talk to you. I literally can't even talk to you. If you mean literal death, I can't talk to you, right? You need help. You need serious help if you think that. And so what is nothingness? Nothingness is the recognition that all claims are fallible. It's not itself a claim. It's, it's a recognition of a fact of existence, a fact that if you deny, you will become mentally ill and you will not be able to cope 
with life. It's a fact like that. It's an existential, psychic fact. It's not necessarily a philosophical fact, although it can be, but the thing is, is all of the people who would make the philosophical claim to the contrary and actually believe it, they're going to die. <laughs> so they're not going to be around very long to make their case, are they? So I don't think we should worry about them too much. The people who go, no, there's, there's, uh, there's, um, it's not true that things change. Things don't change. Things always stay the same. They're going to be complete failures, right? And their failures will speak far louder than their philosophical arguments. <laughs> People will be like, why the hell would I listen to you? You're a loser. Because you haven't updated to your changing contexts, right? So, so nothingness, it's, I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> oh man, it's not easy right? I'm saying it's undeniable, but I'm, that doesn't mean that it's not easy to embrace, or that it is easy to embrace, right? That it's not profoundly difficult to not deny. It's, it's undeniable in one sense, but it's the hardest thing ever to embrace, because it is the most profound humility, right? It is going, oh my gosh, there is so much ambiguity and uncertainty. I don't know. I don't know if the people who I think I love are keeping these super dark secrets from me that will be unearthed tomorrow. I don't know if there's going to be a horrible tragedy of some kind tomorrow that could totally, totally rock my world and turn everything upside down and set fire to everything I thought I knew. Humility is recognizing that. Humility isn't just epistemological humility. Humility isn't just saying, oh, I don't think I know everything. No. Real humility is a full body, mind body recognition that all claims are fallible and that you don't know the future and that it will inevitably break you. But that's what, that's life. Life is getting broken and getting back up, right? That's, that's the story of the Dark Knight. That's the story of this, what's it called? The Angelina Jolie directed movie about the guy who was in the Japanese internment camp, unbroken, I think. It's a, and you see it all the time. It's the story of every time there's a bully and he beats down the, the kid at the park and the kid at the park just gets up again and again, right? You see it constantly. It's the story of Spider-Man, right? This is, these are stories involving characters that represent our relationship with the future and time and change. They are psychodramas. They're archetypal. And it's not all, it's not all despair and gloom. Every time that you have an unexpected inspiration, every time that you find yourself in awe, in awe, which is that's a full body experience if you want to find one, right? But it's 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 illusory. It's it's elusive. It's not illusory. Sorry, it's elusive. That's what I meant to say. It's not illusory at all. It's elusive. It's hard to find. You don't know where to look. Why don't you know where to look? Something is often awe-inspiring precisely because it's the thing that you haven't been looking at, that you haven't known to look for. 
that's the unexpected in the future, right? When something when you have an inspiration, you're like, whoa! Like recently, I have been so radically inspired by Kendrick Lamar's latest album. I think it is a total masterpiece, and it hit me. And you know what? I probably I I know I think that in part because of the context, because everything that I know is in part because of the context and you, whether you admit it or not, right? And I really needed to hear that album at that time. It really helped me. And that's probably why I think it's a matter. I can, I can give you plenty of intellectual reasons. Um, and I, of course, I believe them. <laughs> that's why I'm giving them to you about why it's such a masterpiece. But undoubtedly, it's connected to my autobiography, to my history, to the context of my past, why I think it's so amazing. Right? But I wouldn't have known. I like, I like Kendrick Lamar's one of my favorite rappers. But I haven't really, I wouldn't have thought to look to his new album uh, as for a source of such profound inspiration. And there's things like that for you, I sure hope. I hope that you have been inspired by something and, and been humbled through that process. And been like, whoa. Like, you, you know, oftentimes when we, have, when we have this sense of wonder and awe, we have this sense of expansiveness, right? And people call that God and yeah, fair enough. I get that, right? And really, that's it's the sense that there there is something outside of us that we must contend with, that we must embrace, we must deal with, we must grapple with, we must form a relationship with if we're going to make it through this life in a good way. If we're going to walk a good path, we need to we need more of this thing, right? And this thing when we're in awe, it's a representative of of novelty in the future. That's what it is most fundamentally. But of course it can be really bad too. Unexpected tragedy is in some sense the opposite of unexpected awe and inspiration. Um, I wrote a blog post that this kind of correlates with that I'll link to of course in the show notes. And it's just called Nothingness and Faith and it has a picture of a lotus flower because lotus flowers emerge from the mud and then go through the water. Water is often represented, uh, representative of um, the psychic unconscious. And then they bloom in the sunlight, right? And light, of course, is symbolic of, of enlightenment, of being wise, of knowing the way to go in life in a way that is reliably useful. Um, and I talk about the two problems that can come in to play uh, with nothingness, with accepting nothingness. If you forget that you are nothing, meaning that you that you cannot be certain of anything, that everything is tentative and imperfect, and it's not guaranteed, right? And that's why, really, that's why it's so beautiful. But if you forget that. And if you crave certainty, and this is the story of Anakin Skywalker, right? He couldn't deal with the uncertainty of not knowing whether Padme would die in childbirth. He had to be certain. That's what led him to the dark side. That's the devil, right? Uh, it's certainty. And it's, certainty is the idea, like to put it in Christian terms, it's to think you're your own god. It's to think that you control the future, I understand those terms in different ways most of the time, but that's a useful way to talk about it. And it, and it is, I think it is true theologically, 
I think it that's what the I think that's what the Bible is suggesting is um, to apostatize is in some sense to think that you can know the future um, and that you can and another way of putting this is you know people they used to uh, even I think uh, in certain Jewish I don't know I can't speak to that very well but you know there was this idea that you shouldn't say the name of God because that would be sacrilegious what does that mean well that means that you shouldn't pretend to know the future because naming what will happen in the future is is equivalent to knowing God's will, right? Because God's will is the unknown of the future. So, but I could go on a whole tangent of that. But so there's these two possible extremes. You can run into dogmatism if you constantly forget the fact that you are nothing. If you constantly leave the humility of nothingness, you will become dogmatic. Dogmatic people think that they know what the future holds certainly and they're rigid they're psychological conservatives listen to the double think article the double think podcast and read the double think article to know what i mean by that they resist novelty that's one way to put it they're not willing to update their schemes for of for the future for time they're not willing to update their understandings of what's happening in their lives they are fundamentalist, and this can be anyone. Anyone can be like this, of any philosophy, any worldview, any religion, any political ideology. Anyone can become dogmatic. Anyone. Anyone can go. Anyone can cling out of fear, right? It's, ambiguity is scary. It's terrifying. It's the stormy sea. What's going to happen? Right? Is this death? Is this the end or what? I, there, I don't know. That's terrifying. Everything that's terrifying is like this. What's going to happen? Um, it's anxiety too. Um, and so turning to a sense of certainty is, is an escape from that, right? But it's a false escape. It's, it's a false escape that will cause you problems later. It's short-term satisfaction at the expense of long-term stability and enrichment and enlightenment and the creation of meaning right you cut yourself off from all that because you because you be, want to be so certain and notice dogmatic people tend to be very frustrated and hateful and angry hateful is kind of a, a moral judgment but like if if you look at the if you look at pastors of fundamentalist religions what are they doing most of the time? They're railing against people. Are their messages inspirational or are they more like, blah, then these people are sinful and down with these people and these people are going to hell, right? What are they doing? They're redirecting the frustration that they have in life because they're constantly running into trouble due to their ideological, philosophical, psychological rigidity. They're running into trouble in their personal lives and they're displacing that through their sermons they're not healthy which means they're not well adjusted for the future they can't show you how to live they're bad sources of truth because if you listen to them you will fall prey to this lie of certainty this dogmatism that's why they're angry right they're not they're not able to contend with what's happening they can't deal with it 
and they're angry about that because of course of course you're you're frustrated and angry when when things aren't working right you're not dealing and so 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 much of the time they have all of these problems that they've been repressing right it's it, it's like it's almost it's almost guaranteed some of the time that a pastor who's like railing against gays is actually having like wild party sex with a bunch of male prostitutes, right? They're, those things are totally connected. The anger and the frustration is connected to the ignorance and the repression, right? Um, so dogmatism, that's one extreme, right? A false sense of certainty that, that just, it just puts mental health and existential crises in the future, right? Because if you think that you're really certain, you're not going to have the humility to learn and grow and develop and to change your ways of understanding um, to incorporate lessons that you've learned because you're not learning because you don't have the humility necessary to learn. You, every time something bad happens, you just have some, some quick some quick regurgitated ideological justification. Oh, that well, it must be God. Right? Oh, 9-11? That's, uh, wow, should I try to feel? Should I try to contend with the fact that, like, oh, my God, tragedy can happen. The unexpected can happen. It can totally rock my world. I am nothing. Nope. Nope. Not at all. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, you know what? Actually, that's because of the gays. And that's, and that's God's punishment for the gays, right? That's what the Westboro Baptist Church guy said, right? He's unable to deal with he's unable to deal with tragedy in life. That's what he's basically saying when he says that God did it to the gays, right? <laughs> that's what I hear. I think that's what you should hear too. And I think you should think about what you're saying and hear what you're saying in that way. Be self-aware. But here's the other extreme, fatalism. If so dogmatism is is always uh, it's always forgetting that you are nothing, but there's another extreme and it's always remembering that you are nothing. Because if, you, if you're always trapped in the, the, the awareness that like, oh my gosh, everything is imperfect, everything is tentative, everything is fallible. Oh man, if everything's like that, what, I don't even know how to live. Like, what should I do? Wow, that is a hard place to be in. That is rough. That is despair, right? If you're there for too long, that's, that's humility gone too far. And now you're in despair. And, and just sh in, in profound anxiety. Kierkegaard, who I love, and who obviously has influenced me, if, you've, if you know him, his writing, uh, he, called, he called this the dizziness of freedom. And that's what it is. Well, if everything's unfollowable, everything's imperfect, what do I pick? Right? You have the freedom to pick, but you're stuck. You're stuck. You're lost. You're trapped. What do you pick? And people like this, the fatalistic people, they're so stuck and trapped in their anxiety that unless they change, they just shrivel. They just shrivel up. Right? They can't deal with it. And oftentimes they commit suicide. Right? Oftentimes they turn to ways to escape the recognition, the awareness that they are stuck. They're still stuck, but they just want to ignore it now. They don't want to try to get unstuck. They just want to ignore that they're stuck. So they drink, or they do drugs, or 
they just they exercise all the time and they and they don't like freud talked about how exercise can be like this and i totally agree with him right um you can just exercise all the time anything anything that gets you this is a metaphor more a, a metaphorical way of speaking out of your head into your body to ignore the fact that you are stuck right it can be like that right maybe you're constantly in your joe rogan immersion chamber and that's your way to to avoid the reality of your stuckness the reality of the fact that uh, you need to uh, that you're at this precipice right that you're looking into the abyss and you're just stuck looking into the abyss you're just looking you're not going anywhere so to recap nothingness is the awareness that all claims are fallible and it's what is necessary to be humble to be truly humble and it can go if you're constantly remembering your nothingness you can turn to fatalism and become kind of suicidal and nihilistic and if you constantly forget your nothingness you can turn dogmatic and have an um, an exaggerated unjustified unused like a, a useless and actually counterproductive something that will hurt you and the people you love in your life and will cause you mental health crises and existential crises a lie of certainty of dogmatism so you've embraced nothingness and that's the hardest first step that's so hard what do you do now next we talk about faith okay faith First, I should definitely clarify that I am not a Christian, and I am not part of any known or, or organized religion. So when I fit, say faith, I don't mean it in a particular direction. And I would just like to say that every religion and every worldview has an understanding of faith. It applies faith in a certain direction. It's a way to think about it. It, it just annoys me to no end when when Christians are like, oh, our religion is unique and special because we have faith and all of the other religions, they don't have faith. And it's like, what you mean when you say faith is specifically and, and actually explicitly the Christian conception of faith. So like, what are you saying? You're saying these other religions aren't christianity it's the most people think that this is such a profound point and it's so not it's so dumb it's so dumb like it's just you you have to be so extremely self-unaware <laughs> of your context like your, your context is christianity and you are defining a term according to your christian context and then going Huh, well, this doesn't apply in other contexts, and that means my context is special. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that at all. All it means is that, is that it's a contextualized term that makes sense in a particular context. So if anyone says that, that's, it's not a good argument at all. It's, it's actually a very stupid argument, and it's based on a total misunderstanding of how language works. Um... Okay, that was kind of harsh. That was that was harsh, but but true. Um. Anyways, so I don't mean faith like that. Um. I understand that I, I'm. I don't claim to be a neutral observer. Uh, 
the faith that I'm going to be talking about today, I actually do think is in many ways the faith of Christianity, because I think that I'm an existentialist in part because I think Christianity is an existentialist religion, or at least the version of Christianity I most respect is Kierkegaard's existentialist understanding of Christianity. And there is a version of Christianity that I'm deeply sympathetic to, and it's Kierkegaard's. And I actually haven't really, I don't think I've met anyone <laughs> who, who thinks of it this way, uh, which is a little sad to me, but doesn't mean I don't still respect Christians and love them deeply uh, and want them to pursue their faith as they see fit. It's not, you know, not anti-Christian, not really anti-anything because nothing is essentially bad. Um, it, well, there are some things <laughs> that I would say I, I'm pretty much always against. But anyways, so faith, what is it? Um, faith, remember I talked about how remembering nothingness too much too long can cause problems and forgetting it too much too long can also cause problems well faith is the way of balance faith is remembering and forgetting your nothingness enough to be self-aware and humble but also to make something of yourself right and that's the two that's the that's those are the good sides of the bad sides of the extreme right what's the opposite of dogmatism it's humility what's the opposite of fatalism achievement doing something actually making an, a meaningful impact on the world because the fatalistic are stuck so faith is movement through humility that achieves in the world and you can only have this faith if you recognize the nothingness at least part of the time. If you have these reminders, if you switch into the role of the humble person to reorient yourself, to ground yourself in your humanity, in your, in your boundedness to this earth. And a lot of religious cultural practices do this, right? And that's why... Um, social scientists have found time and time again that people who are religious live longer, have fewer mental health crises, and uh, report more uh, subjective satisfaction with their lives. It's because they, have, they are embedded in a cultural practice and a cultural way of life that helps them remember and forget their nothingness in a way that creates psychic stability. And so I, I, I respect it. I'm, I'm very concerned about the decline of religion, right? What's taking its place? Where are these new cultural ways of life, these new wisdom traditions that can help the, the apostates like me um, remember and forget their nothingness? Where's the, the rituals and the, the practices and the, and the group, um, the group uh, liturgies that can facilitate that? We're seeing a rise in therapy to meet this need. I'm becoming a therapist to try to meet this need that I don't know how to fix other than through individualized therapy, right? This is a crisis, and I don't know the answer, and there might not be one. But I have, I'm trying to have faith, because it's the only thing I can do. The only thing I can try to do is to become the, 
the, the best solution to this problem that I can by remembering and forgetting my nothingness, by being humble enough to learn and to develop myself and my skills as a psychotherapist, as a, as a husband, as a son, as a brother, as a friend, right? And also forget my nothingness just enough that I can actually put my mind to work and I can dig in and I can clench my teeth through the pain, through the frustration, through the exhaustion, and I can actually do something. I can actually practice the skills to develop them, right? I have to be humble enough to realize what I need to do and I need to be um, strong enough to practice them and to do them, right? There is real strength in faith, real strength. The, the conception of grace in Christianity is, is, such, is so good because what is that? It's, it's an allowance for contradiction in a sense, right? When you remember that, how, how can you possibly go, I'm going to remember that I'm nothing some of the time and forget that I'm nothing other times, right? How can I be like Sisyphus? I, I, push, the, <laughs> I push the stone to the top of the hill and then I look and all I see are more hills, but I still go again. Is that not a philosophical intellectual contradiction? Is that not absurd? Right? Camus talked about this. It is. But what's the alternative? Death. Death is the alternative. Really. It starts with psychic death, with going, which is the fatalism I mentioned, right? Or the dogmatism. Both are forms of psychic death. Because, um, because your psyche is now very vulnerable to be totally broken and burned to, to an uh, to a degree that can't possibly be rescued uh, from through tragedy, right? So that's psychic death. And oftentimes that results in actual death, right? What's the alternative? Faith. Which is, I call it in the dog, a blog post. I, I might have stolen this from somewhere. I really don't think I did. If I stole it from, from you, I'm really sorry. Uh, but I, I, I was so proud of it. <laughs> so hopefully I didn't steal it. Um, a disciplined dance with change, right? And the discipline is the strength that you have to have to go, wow, even though everything is fallible and nothing is certain, I'm still going to put myself out there. I'm still going to take a risk, right? I'm still going to just hope that the thing that I'm going to do, that it's going to turn out for the best, right? I can't know, but I just, I just have to hope. I have to have faith. I have to have some, some confidence, that it's the right thing to do. Otherwise, I won't do anything. And that's certainly wrong, right? That can't be the answer. So that's what it is. You have to be humble, but you also have to be strong enough to act on what you think is right. And you have to be able to update what you think is right. In the post, I say, the faithful play the masters who design what should be. So this is the planning. This is when you deliberate. This is when you, when you uh, determine what should be done. They also play the slaves who push through the pain to transform potentiality into actuality. This is you when you're working out. Like you go, I'm going to go to the gym, and then you go to the gym and you actually do it. This is you when you go to work and you actually do it, right? This is you when you 
you need to read a book and you don't want to read it, but you actually do it, right? This is you when you need to clean the kitchen and you know you should clean the kitchen, but you don't want to do it and you do it, right? It's all the time. It's when you go and pick up the kids from school, even though, gosh, another day at school and like they're going to be loud and I don't know, I don't have kids. I just imagine it's terrible uh, a lot of the time, (laughs) Um, right? But then, but then also, also, the faithful play this third role and they rotate these roles, right? Because you can't be all at the same time. Faith is something that is practiced over time. You don't have faith in the moment. What does that even mean? It doesn't make any sense. It's something that is a way, right? Are you walking a path? Are you going away if you're standing still? No. You have to be moving through time, walking the path, moving along the way in order to quote unquote have faith, right? Faith is a higher order phenomenon. It emerges from the way that you go, right? The way that you go is characterized by faith. You can't just have it. Where is it? In the moment, right? Like it's it's a way of moving through the world. It's a mode of being. It's a relationship with being, with a spiritual being. <laughs> That's really one way to talk about it. Um, um, this, but this third role that they have to play is the imaginative, the imaginative strangers who suggest creative solutions for impossible problems in life. So the strength is the master and the slave and the, the, the dynamic between them, right? And, and I'm not advocating slavery, but I'm advocating human sacrifice <laughs> of yourself, right? What is, what is deciding I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to have, I'm going to be in pain. It's going to be hard, right? Or I'm going to go do my chores. Uh, I have cats. I'm going to go scoop the stinky, disgusting cat litter instead of just waiting and then having to replace the whole thing and waste a bunch of litter. I'm going to go do that, right? So that is, you have to set your mind to something and then you have to go through it. So it's just like a master saying, hey, do this. And then the slave having to do it. You are both if you are practicing faith with discipline. But also, so that's the strength side, but you have to have the humility side. And the humility side is the creative stranger. It's your imagination, which is to say it's your ability to learn and develop and grow and go, wow, this isn't working. How? And then you have to, you have to imaginatively think like, well, what, what could be the problem? And how could I fix it? And who should I talk to if I don't know how to fix it? Right? That's, that's, a, that's a product of imagination. And, and it's self-estrangement. You have to be willing to go, wow, I need to make the person I am now a stranger to my future self because if I'm going to continue to be this person, I'm just going to keep running into this problem. So I need to change. I need to change who I am. And, you know, a, a romantic relationship with someone, it changes over time because the context changes and you change and your partner changes. And so the, the dynamic between you has to update in order to accommodate these changing circumstances. That's just like how it is with the future, right? And God is in some sense the future that you're getting to know and form a relationship with, right? And it's mysterious and there's changing circumstances and 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 the person you your romantic partner should always stay a little bit mysterious about to you like they should you should always be kind of curious i'm saying this i don't i don't really follow this advice as much as i'd like to myself um 
but like you should always be curious about them because the time is always moving and they're always doing stuff and that's always changing them and you're always doing stuff and that's always changing you and so the relationship that you have the dynamic the 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 habits that the two of you have as a couple um those are impacted by these changes and need to be updated um if they come under pressure and maybe even proactively right that's faith right faith is is a psych it's psychologically protective right a lot of psychopathology is avoidance of nothingness um, through dogmatism or fatalism and a lot of psych a lot of psychotherapy is getting people to recognize hey things are uncertain you are nothing and that's okay and that's actually true and if you can accept that you can love yourself a little bit more not in a prideful way but in a self-accepting way right and go because in a way in the way that is necessary for you to move forward it's the mercy and it's the grace that you must have in order to go wow i'm not bound to the past i'm not a slave to the past i can move forward and up right i can become better and move forward in the future at the same time with faith okay I think that's all I have to say about that today. I hope this has been interesting. Um, Embrace nothingness, and then out of nothingness, have faith. There it is. All right, until next time.